Hey everybody, welcome back to Terminus, the Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney of Extreme Metal Podcasts. I am the Death Metal Guy, a.k.a. Of course I'm taking the door for myself, I paid for the patches. And I am the Black Metal Guy, a.k.a. Up at 4.30 a.m. frantically googling Young Dana Duffy nude stable diffusion futa. <laughs> Oh, man. Dana Duffy. One, I wonder where she is. Two, have you ever actually listened to Demonic Christ? Just enough to have a vague idea of what it was. I've probably listened to the record that came out around, like, you know, like, later later aughts. Like, just enough to get an idea of what it sounded like. I don't know. It was, like, really burly American Black Death, right? I I want to say that I might have heard it at one point and I just found it kind of boring, but yeah. I don't really remember it that well. Wasn't she also in um she wasn't in Dracada or something. And she was she was in something else that was She was in a band better. called Mythic, which might be which was Death Doom, which that that could be interesting. Yeah. I, think, I don't know. I think I th- like the real my guess is that the really early Dana Duffy stuff is probably worth checking out. I think I want to say I've heard Mythic and that was pretty cool. But like, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't know. Demonic Christ, it, Demonic Christ was like kind of a name for a while, probably in the the older days when you know Dana as a woman was like a rarity. But I, yeah, it's, that's another band that you know was a standard talking point for metalheads. That's just completely yeah. disappeared now. I were, there was a bunch of like talk about Demonic Christ in like the aughts or early tens. Uh, but the, um, uh, I think because uh, journalists decided she was the wrong kind of woman in metal. <laughs> uh, the, um, the, but, uh, but yeah, they, I, it looks like there hasn't been a full length since Punishment for Ignorance in 95. And I'm sure that's not what I heard. Uh, right, so like, I do really like that if you go to her artist page, she was apparently married to a guy in anti-scene for a while. <laughs> oh, wild. That that makes a lot of sense, though. <laughs> I I don't know anything about anti-scene. I just, it, it just strikes me as funny inherently. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Anyway. Well, you know, they were, they were Gigi Allen's backing band for a minute. Oh, they were? Yeah. Oh, okay. Were they, that the that right makes band. sense. Yeah, and they're sort of... Uh, they're sort of um, uh, redneck, aggressively redneck garage punk. Uh, oh. They have a song. They, they've got a sick song called "What Was It?" Spare change. Ain't giving you none of my spare change. <laughs> well, you know, many years from now, when I decide to fully explore punk, I, I, I look forward to that. <laughs> All right, we've uh, we've got an episode up front though, guys. The usual housekeeping. Follow me, the Death Metal Guy, on Facebook at Terminus Podcast. Follow the Black Metal Guy on Instagram at Terminus Extreme Metal. And if you're particularly invested, feel free to sign up with us on Patreon uh, because we are perpetually demonetized. I have several more Lamborghinis for you to pay for. Uh, $3 and up gets you access to Terminus Prime bonus episodes. $5 and up gets you access to the Terminus Black Circle, our private Discord server. We were were talking about, uh, yet again, the Azrar BBH drama that... uh, continues to depress me every single day. This is a little one gash and you're listening to Terminus.
Okay, and we are back with the record you've all been bothering us about in the comments, uh, chomping at the bit, waiting for us to review. It is the return of Argos Lent after uh, about 15 years with Resuscitation of the Revanchists, a record that was rumored for a long time but is now finally here. So, death metal guy, what do you make of it? Resuscitation of the revanchists? Well, Argus Lent should have signed a DNR before they came back. Because this record fucking sucks. Wait, what's a DNR? A, a do not resuscitate order when you like... <laughs> Like if you're if you're if you're if you're put on life you don't want to be put on life support if you're in like a coma you just want them to leave you to die you you sign a DNR. Um, Yeah. So on that note, honestly, like, yeah, it's an odd title, right? Resuscitation (laughs) of the revanchist. Revanchist being you know one who seeks revenge, right? Uh, But the um, a movement that sort of started in the French reaction to the Franco-Prussian War. But anyway, um. Resuscitation of the revanches mean like it's not exactly a uh, yeah that's like a guy who needs to be defibrillated. <laughs> it's uh you know or you know get some chest compressions. Um, it, it's not exactly a uh, howling rebirth from the shattered cenotaph. Um, and th- that tone is consistent with some of the song titles here, right? Track one, recalcitrant commando. <laughs> well, you know, a recalcitrant commando is one who doesn't want to go on the mission and is, in fact, actively dragging his heels. <laughs> and that's what the band sounds like they're doing here. <laughs> yes, I assumed the titles were sort of ironic, like, haha, oh, you know, it's been a long time. Everyone bugged us about making this record, but here we are, right? I assumed the titles were like a joke in that sense, but the joke's on us. Ah, oh, man. Right, the titles are very, very literal. Um, you've got a good theory for how this record came into existence. So, I, I am... So, this is a very bad record. But it's it's very bad in a way that I did not expect it to be. Which is that it sounds lazy and tired and phoned in. The band doesn't sound like they want to be there. Like, it sounds extremely recalcitrant. So my theory is that um, last year, GBK came back from the dead and put out Kohanic Charmers, which is an excellent record. It was one of my favorites of 2022. And most of the lineup on Kohanic Charmers is uh, present here on the new Arcus Lent record. Uh, These are, you know, just the same lineup, in essence, is on both. Um... Including the the drummer from GVK now doing vocals in Argus Lent. Interesting. So my theory is that these guys came back from the dead and what they really wanted to do was a GVK record. Um, they were interested in it, they were passionate about it, and they decided to write and record it, and it was a really good record. But when GVK came back... Immediately, what happened from the fan base? They all started howling for a new Arcus Lent record. I think the fire to do music in the manner of Arcus Lent has left these guys, but they were all in the same room together, so they said, fuck it, why not? 
we can probably make a bunch of money for not a lot of effort. The lack of effort permeates just about everything on this record in precisely the opposite way from how, like, intensity and cleverness and careful songwriting permeated all of the GBK record. Um, this sounds like a record that was made purely out of circumstance. Like, Arcus Lent had been threatening to come back for a lot of years. I do not believe they had any material ready. So people, you don't think they, I almost wonder if it's the opposite. So we know, do we know that the GBK, I think, I think you talked about this or I've seen it around somewhere that the GBK record involved a lot of old riffs that he had sitting around um, that were reconfigured, obviously, in like a really compelling way. It wouldn't surprise me because every every riff on that GBK record has so much more personality than any of the riffs on this one. I guess what I'm wondering is if some of this is cutting room floor shit. Possibly. These are like leftover C riffs. I mean, maybe, but this really just strikes me as something that was slapped together over the course of a month or something. Recorded in the studio like a rock band. Yeah, it's just like there's... We're sort of like diving into the middle of this, but like, it's not just that the material sucks. It's that it it sounds bored. There's just, there's none of the sort of explosiveness and flair of other Argus Lent records. I mean, it, it goes down to the production, which sucks and is flat and sounds basically unmastered. This seems like something that was just made, it was written and recorded and put out as quickly as possible. I, I of, all the, of all the bands to suggest we're committing a cash grab, Argos Lent was not at the top of that list, but somehow they've rocketed up to the number one position. It, truly bizarre. Of all the bands in the world, you know, your, your, your 18th century racist Melodeth band is the one that decides to cash grab. Holy shit, man. How does that work? <laughs> it's, um... Well, it's, uh... Let's go to the so on a musical level. Let's how do yeah. We let's discuss it. So well, you should talk about it because so I have, I have never been much of an Argus Lent fan. Uh, you're more into them than I am. So I think you can talk about kind of like what the difference is, where they came from, what made them distinct yeah. to begin with. Yeah. Well, it's it's never been one of my like go tos. But something that always impressed me about that, it was just immediately, they are now one of the most influential bands in the underground. Mm-hmm. Like, like top three, right? We, we could probably agree on that. There's tons of young bands are name checking them. Uh, they're, they have an indirect influence on um, how melodies are shaped in music that doesn't sound very much like Argos Lent. And then there are all these Argos Lent clones and Argos Lent-esque projects popping up. Um, the the thing that was the thing that's really striking about them, though. So what everyone fixates on is these elaborate consonant melodies that have sort of shameless hard rockisms in them, right? And uh, big, broad pentatonic scales that sometimes evoke. Uh, you know, 
Scotch-Irish redneck violence and at mm. other times evoke the blues, basically. Uh, and, and, and also at other times really evoke sort of more... Um, more elegant folk music or true neoclassical melodies. Yeah. Right? And, um, it's, and it's worth mentioning that Arcus Lent were, especially in their heyday, like in the 2000s, one of the first bands to really bring heavy metal back into extreme metal. Like now that's a pretty standard technique, but they were very ahead of their time in that during yes, that period. And, to, and to, although some people attempt to cope with this band by uh, dismissing it as mellow death or poppy or whatever that that is ridiculous the thing that set it apart at the time especially when mellow death was still kind of a big thing in the 2000s was that it although it was uh, <laughs> although it had a lot of Dorian scales in it it was uh, it was both more genuinely melodic and far heavier Mm -hmm. um, so people fixate on those melodies, but the way I described them, right, I tried to give a cultural texture to each kind of melody. What, what the people influenced by them often fixate on is simply, oh, my big riff, right? Um, and end up accidentally writing sort of sugary pop music. Argosland has never done that. And part of the thing that's kept them from that is one, the cultural depth in the riffing, right? Uh, the sense of history behind it and the different musical languages that are on display and also the imagination on display, right? This sort of 18th and 19th century world of imperialism just is blasted into the present, right? And on on the other hand, it's rhythm. Argosla in many ways is spiritually a black metal band. It's weird that people call them a death metal band. And they've had more of an impact on modern black metal by far. Mm -hmm. uh, however, they use the whole thing in this sort of epic war metal genre, as, as we've talked about, is using the full arsenal of death metal to do black metal things. And there's a lot of just... Argoslin excel at doing things you could only do with death metal, um, especially the heavy rhythmic compression. Uh, every... There is a attention to melodies are closely tied to rhythmic phrases that are sort of complex. They're triplet based. There's all sorts of triplets. There was swaggering flam patterns. We've talked about that on this show when we hear them in other bands like Cauldron Black Ram mm -hmm. or whatever. Uh, and um, there are uh, just extremely heavy chug stuff. Um, and it's not all continuous palm mutes either, right? It's not just like trimmed palm mutes. Everything is crisply articulated. If they're going to play a stream of chugged 16th notes, they will play them. You'll hear them in like quadruple. You'll hear them in fours, mm -hmm. right? Everything is marked and articulated. Um, a guy I knew... Um, You know, a, a guy I knew once talked about, like, described an aristocratic way of speaking as enunciating every consonant, right? Mm -hmm. You're not going to be a, you're not going to be a, you're not going to slur your words in a slovenly way, right? You are going to take the time and make the effort 
to demarcate everything clearly. And that clarity of form in Argos Lent is granular. It's down to like the articulation of a single triplet. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything is set off and maximally intended in the way it's played and high impact. Uh, and there's just um, a kind of, uh, there's a physical heaviness, there's a rhythmic fluidity and a rhythmic complexity, not in a silly proggy way, but in the in the way that like a lot of music outside of metal has far more rhythmic complexity. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm not talking about like pop music or whatever, but like um, that there is, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of breathing room. There is a, and there is a particular technique, which I'll get into a little more about like transferring momentum across what seem like huge discontinuities in the song. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's the thing that makes it Arga the thing that makes Argosland is not sugary consonant melodies. It's bright, manly, energetic melodies, right? That kind of like uh um you know, uh Horatio Hornblower, but he's jacked and he's a fucking asshole. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, and the um and he's drunk again. Um and the and at the same time, um, and, and the rhythmic energy helps give it that sort of barreling, barrel-chested masculine energy. Yeah. Although it is worth noting that a lot of the... What you're saying is correct. Argus Lent is not just about, like, sugary melodies. That is what a lot of their imitators picked up on, though. Yeah, that, I was trying to stress that at the beginning. But yes, that's been one thing we've talked about again and again over the last couple of years is people have the wrong impression. So this gets us more towards the present record. People have the wrong idea about this band in terms of what's important musically. The one Argos Lent sort of worship project that really gets it is House of Atreus. Mm-hmm. And they also have the decency not to knock off Argos Lent. However, their music has a huge thrash, death thrash-based rhythmic heaviness to it. Um, and these sort of, again, like, baffling lateral moves that Argoslant makes in terms of song structure and rhythm. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the, but w- what other bands are pulling from this is, is mostly a reduced sense of the melody. Uh, you know, there, there have been a couple uh, offenders in that regard lately. Uh, I didn't really like the Grenadier record. Mm-hmm. Um, too sugary for me. There's uh, what was the other one that everyone posted in the Discord lately? It just uh, sounded like Sacramentum. I don't know about oh, it's Usurper Marauders of the Ascended. It sounded like Sacramentum. Oh, okay. Um, but like uh, the um, the problem is that this record sounds like what the nowadays scene thinks Argos Lent sounds like, minus the dazzling quality of the riffs. I was about to... It's... I, I get what you're saying, but it's like... For me, it's almost the opposite problem. It's like... If if my problem with older Argos Lent is in part that it's sort of an embarrassment of riches, mm-hmm. like, you would think the easiest thing for them to do would just be do a bunch of songs with nothing but those big riffs and just collect their cash. But there's, like, none of those big riffs. Well, yeah, no, I mean, that's the whole... They could... Argoslant could do a sort of 
Argos Lent Light record and it still be great because this guy's like B and C plus riffs are still better than everyone else's. But like this record has, I suppose, there is a, a baseline of ability that you can still hear this here on this record. Mm-hmm. But it's like someone took almost this is a complaint I had about the last Hate Forest record although that was played with energy and conviction mm-hmm. I felt like each each riff was like the concept of a Hate Forest riff uh, especially on the riffs that were supposed to be more central it was like it was the concept of a Hate Forest riff and it didn't bother filling the details in uh, Argoslint has this problem all over almost throughout this record these are like placeholder Argus Lent riffs. We should, I, I think that it should also be addressed that like one of the major problems is that like all remaining traces of like real death metal have been sucked the fuck out of this band. Yeah, that's, yes. There's like, I, I was um in the car earlier today just to like brush up a little bit. I was listening to Hornets of the Pogrom yeah. and that that record opens with like some blisteringly aggressive, very straightforward death metal riffing. None of that is present here. This is like almost nothing but just like, like listless mid tempo, heavy metal stuff with some bluesy idioms thrown in just to remind you of what band you're listening to. Yeah. It's um, it, the, the one word for this record is plotting. Oh God! It plods, and it, you know, uh, plodding through the uh, plodding through the battle ruins. And, um, <laughs> it, uh, it it sort of yeah. It's like yes. It's it sound it sounds like lazy or limp new wave of British heavy metal or just hard rock. Um, and yeah, that's kind of what I meant about like. The death metal things that they used to... The death metal that was being bent in a black metal direction is absolutely gone, and now they have neither. Yeah. They just have... They just have sugary... Rhythm... Almost rhythm guitar-based kind of, uh, like, heavy metal songs. It's, um... God, we were complaining about this the other day. Did you... You you compared it to Visigoth. Yeah, I would say I would. Well, you know, that was sort of in a a different context, just because it doesn't it's like, literally sound like Visigoth. It doesn't literally sound like Visigoth, but like the point I was more trying to make is that like Argus Lent, when they started their their return to like heavy metal and uh, you know like burly sort of the burliest side of NWOBHM and stuff, that was like pretty novel. Like, you know, when Incorrigible Bigotry came out, there weren't people still listening to Jag Panzer. Like, I mean, there were, you know, some fucking weirdos, but they weren't on the internet or anything. Nowadays, bands like Visigoth are packing out pretty big venues. The landscape has changed substantially. So before I heard this record, I was wondering, you know, I saw a lot of people complain about it. And I was wondering if the issue was that, like, now we're just in an era where there's a lot more stuff that sounds like Arcus Lent. Yeah. Um, but that's that's actually not no. the case. It, it, no, this just sucks on its own terms. This is not like an issue of like the scene catching up to the band. This is about the band not caring about the product. So 
Um, let me get to a sample just to demonstrate this. I want to go to the second track. I mean, this is the second track of a heavy metal record, which is often one of the best. Uh, as we regularly say on the show, this is Time Worm Bacterium. So um, let's listen to a couple minutes of this, the, 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 the ball-breaking excitement of this track, and I'll talk about some of my prior issues with this band and how they've managed to cause problems that are just the precise opposite of the ones that I had before. Okay, so absolutely nothing fucking happened in two minutes. Nothing happened. Like, th that's that's 40% of the song and nothing happened. Every one of those riffs is like a half riff. On any other album, they, you know, they would have worked the root notes around in these sort of, these uh, melodic figures. Here, they don't even bother with that. They just pick a note and they just sort of like jam it out like eight times in a row um the the lead is sounds like a parody of arcus lent um that that little lead fragment which adds absolutely nothing to the song the thing at the end or the lead over it the... that one yeah yeah oh yeah that's yeah that's enough that's just like we need to put some quick we need to put something over the shitty rhythm guitar part because otherwise that's what you have to listen to for a minute yeah, it, that last riff makes me. I, that last riff is so, it's so beneath Galal. Yeah, like, it's why, uh, why. I, I, well, let's not all lay it at Galal's feet. You know, this this band has you know Holocausto also on guitars, 
Um, and there's been Fair some enough. discussion about who's really kind of the lead writer for Argus Lent. I, mm. I think I've had some people argue that Argus Lent is more Holocausto and then GBK is more Galal, but I, I'm not really sure. Um, either way, it's beneath both of them. Yes, it's beneath this <clears throat> band. The the that what that re- like to attempt like hopefully listeners understand that that riff sucks, but like to that is da 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 but with a pause in the middle of it that's the beginning of a dorian scale and it is being played da da in half notes in in like half notes and whole like whole notes and instead of just playing a full like you could play like a i don't know you could do some sort of like dense chord if you were just going to be like holding you know, doing that kind of like rhythm guitar strummed strummed chords. You could just be playing chords and give them some texture or density. Instead, they are are they like like both playing octaves? I I don't know it's, because it's like it, I mean I can't tell because the production is so fucking muddy and the guitars sound like they're being played through pillows. I can't ba- really tell. Basically, they're like kind of hollow sounding lead parts. I think there's. They might be both playing octaves, which is, I guess you could you could certainly create an interesting sound that way, right? Sort of deliberately redundant, uh, redundant sound, close harmony. Uh, you do cool shit with it, but like they have used that technique to to better effect elsewhere. But here it's just like, why would you do that to play a a uh, just a, a chord progression? Um, and it, it, we should also make it clear that this is not like us cherry picking the most boring part of the album. This is what 90% of the record sounds like is just sort of listlessly moving from like riff gesture to riff gesture with, with, with no, there is, there is no more a death knell for a metal record than sounding bored. You can sound shitty, I mean, and that's better than sounding bored. So that riff in particular sounds like it's a wind-up riff, mm-hmm. right? It, it's got kind of it's a little bit because of how they're because of the the way they're playing it. It and it's got kind of a tension to it. Da, 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 da. It's escalating to somewhere, and the way. And, and it's got that Keating tone to it, right? It mm-hmm. needles a bit. Um, and it, it, that's, a, that's a classic. Argoslent, a classic thing they do is wind up riffs that they sustain for a long time mm-hmm. but are inherently satisfying. Yeah. Uh, the wind up riff is not... You're supposed to be into the wind up riff as yes. well, right? It's not... And in this case, this is a wind-up riff that signal all it does is signal big things coming, and then what happens at the end? Da 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 da. I mean, honestly, that might be the best and most slenty riff on the track yet, but it's not a, it's not any sort of payoff. Yeah. It's, it's this kind of like it's like sinking back into the pocket. Well, I um, I find it really interesting. You know, just just to to pull the camera back a little bit. So I've never been a big fan of Argus Lent because my my primary issue with pro, uh, previous records is that there were very cool riffs, but for me, um, 
they all sort of vied for attention with each other too much. Um, there was too much of an effort made to make every riff a huge riff. So as a result, the song sort of lacked peaks and valleys and contrast in the way that I wanted to. And the the pacing always felt very weird on Argus Lent songs to me. Here, we've got the opposite problem where none of the riffs are the big riff. So we've sort of arrived at a, a similar place, except this is way worse than previous ones because at least there was like the immediate value of the riffs to carry me along well, on previous Argus Len records. I almost feel like, so I see what you mean about the structure. I think that's a fair thing that I sort of used to think about them as kind of like a riff salad approach. Um, I would say that, yeah, I, I would say that even if it were riff salad, the riffs themselves are so sick that I, I wouldn't turn my nose up at that. Mm -hmm. No, <laughs> I know, get that, like, yeah. Damn, this is, damn, this is a good salad. Um, however, I do think there were, uh, there was a method to the madness in terms of the song structures. Maybe it didn't always work, but here's a sample that this record really lends itself to side-by-side -side comparison with their older stuff. So that's what I'm going to do. And, uh... Time Worm Bacterium, that particular really annoying riff that is supposed to work like a wind-up, mm -hmm. is, um, I think, kind of evoking, uh, evoking the second track from Incorrigible Bigotry, uh, yeah, which is The Purging Fires of War. So let's listen to the wind-up there and how they manage that sort of structural discontinuity. Basically, there, you've got this sort of, um, uh, this, this simple, repeated tension-raising riff, right? It's this sort of, uh, what's, um, you know, this arpeggio, what is it? It's, it's like, uh, tapping, whatever. It's a tapped arpeggio. Yeah, it's just, a, it's a little hammer thing, I think. Yeah, 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 hammer on. Okay, so, it's got this, this simple looping arpeggio, 
And the first difference between that and the simple figure in Timeworm Bacterium is that it is intrinsically sick. It is a primordial heavy metal gesture. It could just be like fucking, uh, you know, you could hear that on a Maiden record. You could hear that on a, you know, it could be like fucking Ingwie Malmsteen or like Randy Rhodes or something. Mm -hmm. You could, uh, or, or you could hear a, you know, second wave black metal guy sticking his tongue out and picking that, right? Well, yeah, it's uh, like the it's like the the little sweep stuff that Infernus does on the title, uh, the the self titled track on Anagram. Yes, yeah, for sure. It, it's a classic, just like stick your tongue out and be evil riff. Mm-hmm. Um, and as that goes for a while, they start to bring in stuff in the rhythm guitar, but the rhythm guitar is not just playing root notes or a supporting role the melodic shape comes in from the chords under the arpeggio, mm-hmm. right? There they're using these, these stacked, this like a sort of mountainous descending slope of chords that sort of uh, reshape where you think the melody is going, right? The melody wants to rise and then the chords start descending under it, but in a way that make it even heavier, heavier and allow them to continue the musical idea without wearing it out. Uh, and then the, it fades out, right? They, it does something really weird. It doesn't instantly pay off, but there's this huge, you still feel this enormous surge of momentum in your chest. Where is it supposed to go? Halftime triplet flam, crushing almost like, you know, like epic doom riff comes in with the vocals uh the vocals and riff are bespoke engineered for each other uh and the riff has that quality of the the it has that unique rhythmic shape just it the chords crash in and then it sort of turns around in this vicious chug part where they are going out of their way to chug all those notes Mm. um and there's a way that the momentum, I think, transfers across the gap and you end up just, it's sort of like a juke in sports or something. You just end up kind of, uh, there's a, a, a dance-like pivot that happens or a yeah. change in stance as a fighter would. And the, the thing that results is not at all the payoff you expected, but it's crushing in part because the riff almost forces you to slow down in a way that you're not expecting it's um there is it sounds kind of random or stitched together but i think it's not and i think it's a really uh it's a really strong transition yeah and, no it's i mean even beyond just like the the nature of the melody itself like i i'm not a huge fan of that part just because i i think that argus lent had a tendency to like overcommit to some of those ideas and that's pretty stretched out for me but even that being said there's fucking direction to it there, there's an idea occurring, you know, they're attempting to accomplish something with that big passage, like it indicates purpose, and Time Worm Bacterium doesn't. Yes, the, the problem is that, yeah, what, yes, what were originally sort of, um, let's say, adventurous, spontaneous, and maybe a little bit devil may care song structures, right? Like, hey, let's slam these two riffs together and see if we can get away with it, Mm -hmm. right? And you find some musical way to make it work. 
have become on this on on this record the degenerate version of that is just slap some stuff together oh oh, no yes the relationship between riffs on this album feels entirely arbitrary yeah it it just yeah the arpeggio produces the triplet the the sort of the massive triplet chorus it just is not it doesn't produce what you expect it to produce no riff on this record the 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 through, almost throughout it, the riffs are sort of self-contained things that sit next to each other, and you could change them around, and not a whole lot would change. You could change the order around. Oh yeah, no, it, these do not. These songs do not have the narrative quality of prior Arcus Light material. Um, so so let me let me do another sample. Uh, this is the like one part of the record that I like. Pretty much the only thing that actually grabbed me out of it, and. What's fascinating is that, like, the fact that this is the part that grabbed me indicates so many of the problems with the album as a whole. This is the opening of Hyenas of the Arunchi. So uh, I like this. Um, I like both of those riffs. You know, why would you have more than one riff a minute on a record? You know, fuck me. But they're both pretty cool riffs. You know, the first one is a sort of like odd bluesy figure with with some unusual sort of like Arg Hustland GBK style cording. And the second riff, I think, is just a genuinely very good riff. I love that little stop in the middle, followed by that little thin Lizzy run. This whole uh, opening of this track strikes me as kind of like an, an early slow maiden track. 
you know, off of something like Number of the Beast. I, I'm thinking of one song in particular, but it's slipping my mind. Um, anyway, it's really cool. Um, the problem is when this is the only part of the album that I give a shit about, it indicates that, oh, it, they should have just done a rock album. You know, they, they, they should have not even made these passing gestures towards still being a death metal band. Um, and related to something you'll play in a little bit, both of those sound like they could just be like on GBK songs. They don't sound like Argus Lent riffs. I, I, one of my working theories at this point is that uh, I, I can't speak to Holocausto, but it seems like Gilal is more interested in rock guitar than uh, extreme metal at this point, which is totally fair. And in GBK, that can sort of survive the translation process because especially on like Kosherat, my favorite record by them, uh, they're playing around with a lot of those rock ideas. It was always prominent in GBK, but it's especially prominent on Kosherat and also prominent on Kohanic Charmers from last year. That's fine. GBK can survive that transition into this sort of like off-kilter black and roll band. The same can't be said for Argus Lent. When you convert Argus Lent to a rock band, you have lost all the exciting things about Argus Lent, and the fact that this is a cool rock passage is just a further indictment of where the band is at this point, that this is the coolest thing they can pull off. Well, I think one reason this passage um, sticks is that um, it's very rockish, yes, but also... It, it sort of uh, has a downcast majesty to it that you would get on, like, say, like the first Solstice record or mm-hmm. something. Yeah. Um, it has a brooding British doom thing. Uh and I guess I hadn't thought about that too much in relationship to our Lent, but that's an that's a probably an important connection. Mm-hmm. Stuff like Solstice, uh, and it. Uh, I guess I was thinking on it with the last sample too. But um, you can play the if they want to do sort of this indulgent rockish riffing, you do it like this, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, an important part of our Lent is tempo exaggeration. The, like, say, they'll go from something very fast to something much slower than you're expecting. Or they'll, uh, or they'll speed something up in a way that's almost uncomfortable to the ear compared to what you're used to for a riff like that. Uh, and in this case, they're taking what are, in some sense, just sprawling, sad rock riffs, and they are, uh, um, uh, they are messing with the tempo in that way, manipulating the tempo in a way that makes it really heavy. Uh, If the record did things like that, operating at tempos like that, it could be really cool and they have a chance to let the riffs breathe and create an atmosphere that's related to their old records, but different, right? Mm -hmm. It'd be like the uh, Argus Lent version of Hey Forest Battlefields. Yeah. Um, Instead, what we have is Argus Lent's Jangle Rock record. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> you know, like the, the sort of just like uh, sort of mid-tempo shuffle kind of things like on your first sample. Um, and that is, yeah, that kind of tempo works for GBK, but not here. And also because GBK always like, you can play that tempo, but make it sound fast. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, you know, it, it would become, they could do their, you know, uh, cool, evil cruising music stuff. 
Exactly, exactly. Yes, yeah. The um, evil, the sunglasses. <laughs> um, so I've got another sample like that. Um, and I've got another side-by-side comparison. But um, this is the only part that really grabs me. Uh, and this is a part where they tap into the, for one of the only parts on the record where they tap into the thing that I think is really important, which is that... Uh, death thrashing rhythmic convulsion uh and the um and the importance of chug and here's a place also where they play with tempo by pushing something faster than your ear expects or almost even wants um and yet this also speaks to problems with the record as a whole especially once we get into the comparison so let's uh um let's go into uh Himek Shabbat, we're going to start about 240. sort of uh, cultural depth to it that you would expect with an Argoslant riff. Um, it has the uh, and it has the sort of contemptuous articulation. Right? Mm-hmm. None of that needs to be uh, palm, 
palm trimmed in the way it is. Uh, the whole thing is clearly demarcated into groups of you know groups of fours basically, uh, and it's uh, and there is just there's that kind of like there's extreme precision in the way it's delivered, and it has an elaborate and organic shape that you are not likely to come up with if you're locked into the way most extreme metal bands imagine melody, mm-hmm. right? Um, problem, it's a GBK riff, right? Yeah. The cultural background to that is Hava Nagila. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, people... even the even the song title sounds like a fucking GBK song. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I think this is GBK cutting floor stuff. I could I see mean, that. You know, it's not to say they're not allowed to cross over between themes, right? They have the record Hornets of the Pogrom, but like, it's this really feels like a GBK at least it was seeded from a GBK riff. Yes. Um, and, you know, that's a thing that people often, you know, maybe don't get. We, did we talk about this a bit with the GBK review? I think people don't... One thing they don't understand about these bands is that uh, the GB, for GBK, he probably listens to Klezmer. Yeah. Like, there's a intricate understanding of how that music works and what it has to do with what, where it converges with Slayer. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, like, you can even uh, simplify it, and it's just like GBK is fundamentally oriented around like pentatonic and phrygian melodies, and Argus Lent is rooted in pentatonic and Dorian melodies. That's that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, and Argus Lent in, in the pentatonic, it's either Scotch Irish folk or it's you know Black American folk music, blues, which Argus Lent they're they're not they're not dummies. They know that. Mm-hmm. Right, so they have seriously immersed themselves in these traditions, uh, it, and it's um, it's a it, yeah. So that, it's an interesting part of the music. It puts some more complexity into the concept than I think a lot of people realize. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and yeah, so it, it's a GBK riff, and it's good for the reasons GBK riffs are good. It's heavily muted in the way an Argosland riff is, but you can tell it's a leftover. They also repeat it a lot. I'm not yeah. necessarily going to hold that against them because I think that Argus Lent has a particular way of being heavy by arbitrarily repeating. However, that riff really wants to turn around after two repetitions. Yeah, it, and and repeating that A-B sequence is not the move. That B riff is leading elsewhere. It's not leading back into the A riff. Yeah, so it's there. There's some unnecessary, maybe structural repetition, um, and the uh, um, and and then the riff two. Uh, the riff two, I love. Um, yeah, that's a cool riff. There are two variations on it. That's one thing I do like. The first version they play is like the preview of of the second, and the second is like the true insanity version. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that has the kind of intense rhythmic compression that I would expect from Argoslin, right? And here they take a pedal point thrash riff and they overdrive it so far in terms of um, articulation. Everything's getting picked um, that you think his fingers are going to fall off. <laughs> um, it's like a modern version of what people must have thought when they heard Overkill by Motorhead for the first time, right? Yeah. Um, it's how can we take a really basic kind of thrash gesture and exaggerate it to this like hypnotic black metal-y place? Um, and it's really cool uh, the way that they sort of 
Um, they work it out a little bit. There are a couple variations towards the end that I think are cool. Um, and then when it shuts out, we're just instantly into this racing blast riff. That could be really cool. Problem is, the blast riff doesn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the song basically ends from there. It does, you know, there's like some maybe like little breakdowny thing, but not. There is. Uh, it's not like some cool fake out. It just runs out of ideas. And uh, to to put a point on that, let's compare this track to what its parallel from Incorrigible is, which is Archaic Invincibility. Probably maybe my favorite track on the record. Um, it's uh, so let's. This is I'm gonna bring bring it up now. Um, there's a sort of. Oh yeah, my notes are a little obscure here. Um, let's just listen to it and then discuss how, how it's like what we just heard and why it's better. Oh yeah, it's it, there. It, it's borderline self plagiarism. Yeah. So uh, we start off on the 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 trem version of what becomes the last riff. Uh, the sort of the trem verse riff. Um, that has that uh, tense wind up riff quality, but it's also inherently satisfying because it's aggressive and, and glorious uh, and then that sort of turns they do a, a subtle turnaround on that into the chorus which again has that sort of triplet flam uh, sudden slowdown heaviness and then sudden stop drop into just this huge wind-up riff that's the pedal point, the frantic pedal point version of the verse riff. Uh, so there's, and it, that's, it, it's the, like the, you know, the thing that we just heard on Himek Shabbat is like the sort of lesser echo of this, right? Where you have the, the thrashing, you have the high-tension thrashing riff, there's a change-up that's more melodic, and then we're back into the insane version of the high-tension thrashing riff. Right in Hemek Shabbat, the insane riff 
spits out into nowhere. In this one, the insane riff spits out into the chorus again, but with the instantaneous whiplash heaviness that I think they do well on this record. Um, so there, there's a direction to it. Um, and yeah, there are just point by point, you can hear them uh, making um, sort of making gestures at their better work. Yeah. And that's, that's about as well as they can do.
And we are back from the death metal guy doing his best impression of K.K. Warslot playing Dublin <laughs> to review Becoming Thunder by Strix Eskesis. This is another independent release. You may remember Strix from about a, a bit over two years ago. Yeah, um, I want to say that the was last a, record. Yeah, was that a 21 release? Those Halcyon yeah. Days for Terminus, summer 2021. Yes, we reviewed the self-titled. Uh, he submitted it to us sort of out of the blue. Um, it w- And we, we really liked it. Uh, and this is the follow-up. So the first record was one of the first really pure examples of what we would both agree is like outlaw rock. Mm-hmm. But it was, um, whereas the center, center line of that style is something like, um, you know, uh, the last Makwahedal EP or whatever, uh, this had a lot, something in common with the sort of frantic punkish energy of Oldowan Gash, um, but with, on the one hand, a more sort of... Uh, primitive foresty gravelandy barbarism a kind of like reverberating woody guitar tone uh really raw uh really raw production sort of clattering drums and on the other hand uh kinds of tonal color and rhythmic intricacy that really sounded like you know like good mathy post hardcore or something mm-hmm um, there were lots of um, there were tracks that successfully were just sort of ecstatic and bright uh, in a um, without sort of uh, without becoming poppy, um, but while still having almost like a bit of um, without being poppy, but also without being like you know uh, there are droog songs that are grim happy, mm-hmm. right. There's stuff on this that just sounds like, fuck yeah, I love trail running. (laughs) Um, But, you know, you're in contact with, you know, you're in contact with the gods and you are, uh, you know, you are experiencing animal joy as you trail run. But you're still like, you know, nodding to the cute birds in the trees. Um, And uh, so there was a kind of authentic exuberance to it that was really refreshing and unusual and it was done without being weak uh and quite quite a range and you know we both thought the sound could use some refining in various ways i imagine you probably didn't like the production too much no but i've got i've kind of got notes on that especially in the context of the new album but we'll get to that right so basically um He emails us out of the blue again and says, uh, literally, uh, I can, I can read this for you. He says, he says, uh, yeah, pucker. Yeah, here, I got it. Uh, said pucker up boys. I've been listening to just inquisition for the past two years. (laughs) <laughs> um i can't remember if i suggested he listened to inquisition but it sounds like the sort of thing i would have said on the last interview or last review mm-hmm. uh because what the music could have used was it was still a bit too smart 
it was pulling on really primal stuff, but it could it could more fully embrace the barbarism. It could have a more full-throated, uh, fleshed-out sound, and more of that kind of uh, masculine directness that you get in, say, the good records by Argus Line or whatever, right? And it could be more deliberately retarded in the <laughs> glorious way that Inquisition is. Um, and this record just accesses all of that and it hits it out of the fucking park. I love it. Yeah, this is uh, this is like an out-of-nowhere contender for like one of the best albums of the year, which I really did not expect at all from this. I mean, the, the first record was, like, pretty cool in its own way, but it, it didn't make a super lasting impression on me. This one absolutely does. It was more my thing than yours. I didn't come... I listened to it a good amount that summer when we were reviewing it, but I didn't come back to it that much in part because it was just kind of a deliberately difficult listen, mm-hmm. right? Kind of, you know, scratchy and weird. Um this is awesome, and this is pretty much what I've been hoping for in terms of uh, the, you know, the movement beyond black metal in America. Whether mm-hmm. you want to call that outlaw rock or something else. Uh, yeah, you this, this would be an outlaw rock record, just in a really different sense of the word. Oh, well, this is super outlaw rock. And it, it's, yeah. Um, yeah, it is very different. So w- when I when I first listened to this album, I was like oh, this sounds like a completely different band. But then I went back and I listened to a couple tracks off of the first one just to Mm -hmm. kind of spot check my impression. And I realized, getting back to what we originally said about the production, um, a big shift in production doesn't... He hasn't just improved the sound quality. He's massively clarified what the band is about. Mm -hmm. Because, like, when I went back to the first album after hearing this one, I realized, oh... All of these constituent parts are basically there, albeit like less refined. But I, I guess the thing when I heard the first one was like, okay, so clattery drum performance and real thin guitars and he's he's shrieky. This is all very lo-fi. I thought there was like more of a gesture towards a sort of indie jangle thing going on. But and to that, like mysterious guy hardcore. Yeah, so but I think that was more of an accident of the production than a, a quality of the music itself, and this clarifies it because this is like really fucking heavy and cool and yep. and and dumber, but in a good way, dumber and as a result smarter. Like yes, it's, 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 this is the epitome of stupid smart. Yes, yes, this is a very good record. This is um, Terminus Canon instantly. Oh, yeah. Um, this is like, he should just go like all the fucking way down this route. Um, so I, so you've got your impression of like where some of these ideas are coming for, from. You know, you've got Inquisition and like, what else are you thinking? Because I've got like a weird take on some of these well, ideas. Well, I think, um, I think Inquisition is all over this. Um I think. Do you want me to get into like the musical qualities, or just named like? Well, yeah. Let's just yeah. let's just talk about our Start overall about impressions. It. Yeah. So I guess the thing that's interesting to me in, in terms of the the take on outlaw rock here, a lot of that music sounds like basically 
stompy RAC black metal transforming into jangling country rock and roll type stuff, mm-hmm. right? Um, and the first Strix pointed a little more in that direction. This record is rockish in a completely different way. It's like, um, it is rock being mined for heaviness. Mm-hmm. And rock music, this has little outer resemblance to rock music. Rock is providing content rather than the form. The music works very differently. Um, but there's tons of things in here that you could isolate as big, greasy, rockish riffs, which you'll get into more. Um, and uh, what it's getting from, it's getting some things from Inquisition. So, I mean, just a, a lot of the a lot of the riffing, core riffing uh, sort of uh, forms on here are coming from Inquisition, but there are some important things, uh, important things about the composition, right? It is, one is the mood. Inquisition is fiercely objective. Uh, It's almost emotionally blank. Mm -hmm. It's, it is brutal and epic. Those are the two things it is, and that's basically the only qualifiers you can use for the first few Inquisition records. There's not like any cosmic yearning. There's no striving or struggling. There's no narrative or development, right? All there is is just instantaneously effective, continuous action. Um, And it's music that is written physically first. It's written to produce, it's written for function. Uh, So the Strix is really captured that about Inquisition and it's also something that links this to Grindcore. I would say that like it links that it's a way Inquisition is like Grind and it's a way that Strix in some way is like Grind. Mm. In that things are written not so much for uh, either standalone riff ideas or interrelated things or interrelated themes that are structured in this top-down way but that it is, it, it's it's written directly to produce. Um, the riffs are linked and move from one to the next because uh, with with the goal of producing maximum heaviness and impact mm-hmm. um, and physical torque, uh, and in that way, and and they're liberated from some constraints of song structure either in rock and in metal. Right, mm. and in that way, I think it's kind of like written like all extreme music when it was at its most experimental. That is like, hey, how do we get to the next riff? Well, what if we just took part of this riff and sort of like, sort of just um, locked into it for eight bars, and then that would shift the momentum and spit us out into the next riff. Mm-hmm. It would be really heavy and sound insane. Yeah. And they just would do that because there was no preconceived notion of how a grindcore song or a black metal song or a death metal song would go. Mm-hmm. Um, these songs are written from the origin in that way. There is no preconceived notion of where the songs have to go. They are just designed to be crushing and triumphant. Well, the, the way you talk about that um, strikes me as like... One of the bands that I immediately thought of when I listened to this one, I was kind of surprised you didn't mention in your notes, was this is the closest thing I've heard to the Ink and Fire record. 
interesting. Completely different production values, but that's what. What do you mean? Oh, the the, the sort of like um, the really high speed, almost off the cuff way it proceeds. The 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 riffing that has something to do with the blues and something to do with Blaze Birth Hall. Mm-hmm. And, and, but also just has like an almost like psychedelic wrench chucked mm-hmm. into it also. Like this strikes me as like, maybe not immediately musically, but like the effect I get from listening to this is very, very similar to listening oh. to the Ink and Fire record. Okay. That makes sense. Cause the Ink and Fire record in a lot of ways is like the sort of jangly, the, the jangly absurd based outlaw rock, but driven to this noise core extreme. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And and I, I think I see what you mean. Yes, I mean there's a track on the Strix record called Mania, mm-hmm. right? Um, wasn't there a Finn track called Manias? I think there was. It's that's it's either Finn or Ink and Fire, mm-hmm. but they're both they both have this kind of like rabid manic energy. And I see what you mean about the melodic DNA being very similar, right? Yeah, yeah. I think they um, they end up producing very different um, effects in their riffs, mm-hmm. but they're like listening to a lot of the same bands. Yes, and they're both kind of what's happening is in both is very punk, but in a way that has nothing to do with actual punk music these days, at least. Um, yeah, well, well, metal. I, I think I've said this on the show before. It's like metal took all the good things from punk. Yes, we, 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 I but completely agree. The 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 actual living legacy of punk is wholly contained within metal. Guys, you don't need to listen to like current punk bands that's not something you need to do it's like yeah. you, you can and the older i get the less i do it's like soldiers soldiers yeah, so. you can all go home the war is over it's just mm-hmm. we, we got everything we needed from punks so. right right the, the, the uh black and death metal uh negotiated with them on and gave them exceedingly good surrender terms <laughs> i was, I was about to say this is kind of like a, a japan 45 situation yeah. um <laughs> um but uh so anyway so there's the inquisition Grindcore, Ink and Fire. Um, I think, yes, like the Blazeberth Hall for this band, both in terms of the way, the freeway he structures riffs and songs, the specific shapes of the riffs, there's a lot of Blazeberth Hall uh, at their most experimental. And there's still a lot of Graveland. Graveland being another band that's very interested in gut level. Uh, Graveland can could be a chug band, and on certain records, um, like Will Stronger the Death is a chug band. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Graveland interested in sort of um, muscular rhythmic impact, mus- you know, mid ten mid tempo physical music uh, with some drone to it. Graveland is here too still, and I think there are also shades of screamo all over this. Oh yeah, dude! Like this is this is very screamo. I mean, I think that was even more apparent on the first record. Uh, you know, where the kind of yeah, jangly the first production, record, you know, the first record had the glassy and fragile thing with sc- that would link it to screamo, right? And mm-hmm. it had the uh, some specific riffs that were those post hardcore riffs. This sounds like the screamo bands that really understand black metal. Did you ever listen to Terzage der Horde? Probably not. Uh, I th- I think I've heard a little bit. I don't really remember it well, though. Yeah, they're like a they're a Dutch band that is spiritually opposed to black metal, but really understands black metal. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and it, so the you could say the music ends up being screamo, but it's powerfully informed by like they like really get Hate Forest and BBH. Yeah, but it's just lots of um, 
rabid, aggressive vocal performance. The vocals in this record sound like Tarzaj Jahord. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of rabid, pukey, screamo vocals. And the um, and an interest in using things like octaves to play big, droning Slav black riffs. And, yeah. and just beefy layering of tone. This record has an incredible... We're sort of buried the lead here in terms of how beefy the tone is on yeah. this record. It's uh, it's 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 very heavy, which is interesting, and I like that, which is weird because, like I've said on the show before, it's like I don't go to black metal for heaviness. That's like a completely tertiary concern. But here, it focuses on the heaviness in a really cool way that makes me like rethink the relationship there. Cool. Um, so the the last thing I want to say before we start moving towards samples is like the the very big and very important rock stuff going on here. Um, and I, you know, we, we've over the past few years, you know, on the show, we've, we've talked about outlaw rock and we've talked about the relationship between black metal and rock music. Um, and this is another case where this is a, uh, you know, a black metal, at least adjacent project that has a lot to do with thrash and a lot to do with rock. But I don't think I've ever heard uh, a band like this pull on these specific strings of rock before. Because what I really identify here is, like, mostly, like, heavy rock from the grunge era. Like, I'm hearing a lot of Soundgarden and Helmet and Faith No More. Which is, those are cool things. I, I like that whole era of rock music, but I don't think I've ever heard that approached so directly in a black metal context, and I definitely wouldn't expect it to work as well as it does here. Um, I'm not sure if that was a conscious decision on the part of this guy, but a lot of the things that we're gesturing toward, uh, you know, Ink and Fire, um, Inquisition. Uh, Inquisition, you know, these are all bands that are playing around with pentatonic scales, are deeply connected to these sort of like rock motifs. So it could just be uh, something he got to in parallel. There is a very common um, perspective on Inquisition, which is incorrect, which is that, or rather, it is correct. People have described it as it's just Pantera with black be- with blast beats. Mm-hmm. And my answer to that is simply like, yeah, like that's sick. Um, so there's a way you go through Inquisition and just end up at like greasy, like greasy groove metal sludge riffs. And from there... Yeah, you're pretty close to Helmet, Soundgarden, Faith, no more. So yeah. it could just be through the black metal influences, but it wouldn't surprise me if he was listening to some sort of heavy, grungy stuff. Yeah. I'll have a, a direct comparison later that mm. I'm sure you haven't heard before, and I think it will <laughs> shock you. But uh, probably not. Yeah. <laughs> let's um, uh, let's uh, let's listen to something. I I, I just want to hear parts of this album again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's um, really fucking good, dude. Like, this is, uh, you know, for for any of you out there who are concerned about the, the veracity of, uh, like, jangle core black metal from Vermont, no, this is fucking awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is, um, it, it doesn't jangle anymore. Um, so we are going to, um, we're going to start on, I think, we, we can now, you've said this before, it's now possible to really pick out outlaw rock riffs, mm-hmm. modern American whatever is after black metal riffs um we're gonna start out on one and it's gonna be fairly familiar it's almost sort of like a pan-american native front thing i feel like this guy hangs out so much in uh 
big broad pentatonic territory like melodic ter- territory we're almost in Hiawampa territory <laughs> sort of like um some of it sounds like the indian themes in westerns uh and we're gonna start out with something like that but then listen to the way the lower guitar comes unstuck from the upper guitar and then the way the riffs uh spit one another out in rapid fire got a bass guitar this time that's cool (laughs) (laughs) um so we we rock it out there on a big greasy riff that you could say is either it could be a grunge riff but is really directly an inquisition riff Mm -hmm. it's one of the sort of the the slow uh one of the slow slow sort of goat skull riffs on, on the Inquisition records. Um, but uh, the action that happens before then is just insane. So, da, 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 da. I, can't, I can't even quite hum it, right? There's this sort well, of it's, elaborate melody. It, it's not really, they're not really riffs. It's just two guitar lines going for like 12 or 16 bars without right. repetition. And there are some repeated phrases in it or figures, but like it is a continuous single stream of, of lead. Mm-hmm. There's also not really a lead or rhythm. Uh, there's just two riffs going in parallel. You see that, that uh, actually reminded me a lot because you were talking about the screamo thing earlier. That reminds me a lot of something like a uh, union of Uranus. Mm. Um, and then would that be like one I God prophecy type stuff? I think they shared members. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, God Prophecy definitely doesn't have anything like independent melodies. It's oh, okay. Yeah, Union but, yeah. would do stuff like that. That sort of like racing, like everything's falling apart, but with these very distinct melody lines. Yeah. Yeah. And so so then it kicks off. Um, there's just this abrupt speed up. Um, and the music almost like leaps. Like, you know, I remember in the Ink and Fire record, we talked about like Appalachian Spring or mm-hmm. something. There's a sort of like a, a leaping folk or folk classical kind of figure uh, 
the you you hear the exuberance of the first record in in a totally new context here, um, and then it's almost impossible to describe what happens. It dramatically picks up, and then the the drums start Graveland galloping. It Gravelands pretty hard, um, which produces a sort of breakdown like effect, but really fast mm-hmm. galloping, and then the um, and then once. Once the once the melody there passes through a certain pentatonic phrase, he decides to stick on it, right? And you get uh, another very sort of um, uh, Indian war drums sounding riff. When I heard him commit fully to that riff and play it a couple times, I was like, yes, this record is brilliant. And then that spits that spits us out to the Inquisition stuff. But really, it's like there aren't really riff. What you were saying about that first passage, there aren't really riffs at all on this record. There are, but that's not the primary unit of organization. There certainly aren't sections like we're going to have a section of this kind of riff and that kind of riff and this kind of riff and that kind of riff, mm-hmm. and they're going to repeat. The riffs are self-transforming. Each riff imminently spits out the next riff it generates the next riff out of itself yeah, there's, uh, there's a high emphasis on these these very organic kind of chaotic ways to progress yes. the song which is very cool and has to be like hard as fuck to do as like a one-man operation yeah you it would be easier to figure that stuff out jamming right? yes yes but in this case you've just got to say i'm gonna play these phrases I'm going to freely play this phrase until I get the until I get the variations that I want and then I'm either going to remember it or try to get something equally good when I record. Yeah, uh, it's it's very a lot of it is like, demanding. Yes, you can hear riffing happening in real time mm-hmm. basically. Um the and as like combinations of notes that are in one riff will generate the next one um and the same principle works whether we're dealing with the most uh mercurial parts of the music like that just sort of whiplash metamorphosis we just heard or the most stable and monolithic so like that inquisition stuff you just heard sprawls into the um this knuckle dragging chug section at the end of the song, where again, I heard that and I was like, I love this record. Um, <laughs> and he gets into the chug with an almost arbitrary combination of just broad, epic, sort of octave, uh, octave, lower it a whole step, you know, just big epic intervals configured in this almost like improvised way. And he just fully commits to it and then instantly produces like four different variations on the phrase to create this much broader unit and maybe repeats that once, but I bet it doesn't totally repeat. Uh, And then it just spits out more chug riffs. Um, And what he's following is never an idea of, well, we did this kind of riff. Now we need that other kind of, another kind of riff. It's always just, where is the momentum going? Yeah. There, there's a real immediacy 
to everything that happens. Uh, you know, I, I mean, we've talked so many times about, you know, where can black metal go? You know, bringing a sort of offhanded improvisational quality back into it mm -hmm. is important. Yes. And this is a great example of that. Yeah, this is basically the, con yes, this just, the the improvisational element, the rhythmic element, the uh, telluric chug and body to it. This is just, I mean, I have tried to write music like this, basically. You know, not exactly like this at all, right? But, like, I just, this is so cool. And it's hearing shit like this that makes doing the show so exciting. Yeah. Um, I was going to do an Inquisition sample at, at the beginning of the review, so we had a reference, but I forgot to do it. Maybe we'll just save that and go on to yours. Yeah, sure, we can do that. Yeah. Um, so let's go to the second track, uh, Autophagy. Um, which is, uh, this is a really good representative sample. And I think that, I think that one of the most powerful features of the record is this guy's like, he understands how to identify these points of inflection between black metal and heavy rock music in ways that I wouldn't expect. Like, it's very easy to understand the way, like, pagan black metal and sort of RAC stuff intersects, but finding the way to weave yourself from, like, BBH into, like, really heavy, groovy rock in a purely American idiom, that's fucking hard to do. And this guy manages to stick the landing pretty much every time, even in, like, points of massive contrast. So here we're going to have an example of that. So we're going to go like a minute and a half in and uh, we're going to open with a sort of BBH drone riff, but then it's going to drop directly into this really heavy 90s rock material. And the the record as a whole thrives off of these moments. This is this is a weird case. You said that this um, this record isn't really riff based as such, which I agree with. Um, the fundamental unit of most metal is the riff, but here the most fundamental unit on this record is sort of the transition between riffs. Like on your last sample, that that crazy acceleration that happens, mm -hmm. you know, as he pulls into a really speedy riff, you know, these sort of wild whiplash inducing changes are actually some of the most exciting moments. Um and it's really interesting to hear a record that's organized around that. Um, so let's check this one out. This guy knows how to select for the exact moments on rock radio that matter to you as a metalhead. Yeah! 
so uh, I I think that like one of the marks of somebody who really fucking gets it and is really good at making extreme metal is like knowing when and how to execute one of those like just three chord gestures that we've heard a thousand times. You know, uh, when you're able to create the context that restores the power to those, like, just simple power chord phrases that you've heard so many times in the past. Like, you know, when we talk about records, like, that play uh, death metal records where they play master riffs and they, like, execute mm -hmm. on the promise, or Celtic Frost riffs, there's nothing from those bands' catalogs that hasn't been done thousands of times and at this point especially guys like us who have been listening to this music for so long it usually just comes off as like a whatever gesture but once in a while you get a guy who like knows how to do it and he does it here um so like i was saying so at the beginning you've got that really cool kind of bbh drone riff that drops into something like a screamo type breakdown but then he lowers the tempo a little bit and plays a little plays around a little bit with the rhythm and then we're just in like full early 2000s american metalcore territory yeah that's that's like a a a an American metalcore band on the third stage at Warped Tour in 2003. You know? it's, but it's a bit more unhinged. The intervals are like grimmer. You know what it sounds like? It sounds like Heaven Shall Burn. Yeah. Well, I I, I think that back in the day, I think back in the early 2000s, you would hear a lot more intervals like that. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, it's not all darkest hour. Right? Yeah, the the totally like slick polished stuff took a while. Like uh, you know, I was listening to um. The other day I was in the car, I was listening to the first Dead to Fall record, if you remember that band. Mm. They were a band, a really early band that was trying to figure out how Metalcore plus, um, like, Gothenburg work together. So they've got all the pieces of both, but they're executed at very strange tempos. It's, it's this odd liminal record that I have a lot of affection for. And this guy's picked up on some of those ideas, you know, the, those early gestures toward those things and the, the power those things had through their sort of tonic instability, if that makes any sort of sense. Tonic instability. Well, there was there like, was there was um, a quality to that music. The, those very early sort of uh, American metalcore records, uh, where it hadn't all been sorted out yet. And, oh, they hadn't like defined their melodic center yet. Yeah, and the okay. uh, and the weirdness of it made it heavier in a way. The sort of awkwardness of it. That's the kind of thing I was thinking about with Heaven Shall Burn, too. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. Well, Heaven yeah. Shall Burn is like honorary American metalcore. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, so that makes a... Yeah, that, that, that part is awesome. And then it ends up in the kind of metalcore breakdown that's highly... It ends up in this highly melodic stuff over double bass, which sounds like the parts you love on the Winter Phyllis records. Yes, yes. Um, beautiful, just like winding twin lead stuff with, mm -hmm. you know, a, a very like straightforward, but like perpetually powerful sort of folk melody. Um, this guy has like got a really good ear for like restoring the strength of a lot of these simple ideas. I like that. Yeah. Um... And yeah, so what else? You've also got the next sample, right? Yeah, which is so fucking cool. And I'm just going to start like 
air punching in my living room and I'm just going to like disconnect everything accidentally. That's going to be the end of the show as soon as we play this song. So this is this is Death Gaze, which is the coolest song on the album and probably the dumbest and heaviest too. We're just going to play a couple minutes of it from the beginning. I'm not going to give any more preamble. We'll talk about it after I've fixed all my equipment. It's that is so fucking good. When I heard that, I was just like, "You can't, you you can't be getting away with this. You you've just got like five big greasy circa nineteen ninety four hard rock riffs. Uh, all of them lead into each other in this brilliant fashion. Um, all of them are like convincingly authentic, yet like completely unique to this band. I'm getting like." weird flashes of stuff like silver chair and shit listening to that. Um, and I also want to say the sort of like bellowing half clean vocals into the full cleans, uh, that that should just be the primary vocal technique of this band. Like he does it in just a couple isolated spots on this record, but it's so fucking cool. 
I think that it should be the primary thing he does vocally. By bellowing half cleans, do you mean the the puke vocals? There's kind of an incremental thing. There's puke vocals at the beginning of the song that are like like crust or yeah. I like I like the the midpoint before he gets to the full cleans, like after the puke. Okay, I I I disagree. I've got to say I disagree on that because I think there's one way to take the band from here that would be death gaze is it that is the track to define the band and if if this was a band like if this was a um alt culture ink band what would happen would be that the band would become this song um i feel like it's important to have the uh wretched wretched screeching in there um as a barrier to entry and as a defining feature of just what what gets me about this part in particular about the record in general is it's like liberating all the cool shit in hard rock from hard rock i don't want it to be a hard rock record oh Um, no i i get what you mean but i guess i would argue that like even within the, the the sort of theoretical accessibility of that part, it's still just way too fucking complicated because that's like five different riffs and the like the the rhythmic pulse is always shifting around in this like yeah. pretty progressive way. Like it's it's accessible in its tone, but it, I think it's just too challenging for like most people. Which is where the extreme metal is still like inherent. Hmm. Um, I think it's like I think the it's five different riffs, but it also like the other thing is just one continuous melody. Yeah. Right. Um. I I actually I do want to throw the Inquisition back in here because I think it can speak to something about how he's making these things that are like riffs and not like riffs. Mm-hmm. But first, you've got a reference point sample you want to play. Yeah, I for, do. For this sample in particular. Yeah, so um, I, I was talking about a few like h- harder rock bands that I think that a lot of this material approaches. And I was kind of like digging around. I wanted to find something that like made that a little clearer. So I landed on... Um, a track from Faith No More's Angel Dust back in, I want to say it was 90 or 92 that that record came out. I'm guessing, just wild guess, you're not a big fan of Faith No More. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've only ever heard the songs that you encounter when you're like 18, and I was like, this is terrible. No, yeah, the singles it always sucked, but Faith No More's catalog it's actually a has... Funky, funky... Yeah, no, they, they actually have a lot of cool stuff. And I just want to play a quick, uh, the opening minute off of Caffeine, which is the second track off of Angel Dust. And I think you'll immediately hear like some substantial resemblance.
So you see what I'm getting at there? Yeah, I can hear some of the the shifts. Well, certainly like the the sort of chug focus. Uh, some of the shifts in emphasis, especially the way it sort of like rolls one riff rolls into another at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess you're thinking especially about the vocal performance, right? Which shifts between the yeah. way the vocal performance escalates. Yeah, the the sort of dynamic vocal performance, uh, even just those like simple bluesy runs that they're they're putting in there. Because you got to remember, all the guys in Faith No More are like all metal guys, also. Um, especially back in the 80s. That's something that's uh, continuous with all the bands that I've mentioned. You know, Soundgarden, Helmet, all these guys are like, have like half a foot in metal most of the time. But they mostly use it as like a structural thing. It's almost the opposite of what Strix does. Strix mines, um, Strix mines rock for content and these bands mind metal for structural ideas. Uh, which I find really interesting. And I just thought this was like a a really interesting reference point. I don't think I've ever had a black metal band remind me of Faith No More before. So that's, that's, that's brand new for me. (laughs) Well, okay. So I thought of another band in this sphere that to compare it to, which would be Smashing Pumpkins. Um, Mm -hmm. I think the most aggressive metallic stuff on Smashing Pumpkins doesn't really sound like death metal, but you can tell he's probably listening to Cyanide mm-hmm. shit, like, um, and and to whatever else was happening in death metal in the early nineties. Um, there's a um, when he commits to doing riffing, he really riffs in the way a metal guy does. Yeah. Uh, and songs like, I mean, one I always go back to is Silver Fuck, which has this yeah. kind of um, ecstatic raga quality to it, where the these big chunky chords really bounce off each other in the way that they do in Death Gaze. Mm-hmm. Um, and my reference point for the vocals there would just be like, the clean sound like Pete Steele, which I thought you would say because you're the typo guy. Um, I, I can see, I, I, I think the problem is that I'm, I'm such a typo guy. Oh, I've, oh. I've just, I've heard, I've heard those records so many times that right. it's like locked in as this very unique thing. I definitely get what you mean though, in terms of resemblance. Sort of like warbling, like Danzig with more sort of, uh, more drawn out and with more sort of warble in it. Yeah. And um, I think that Danzig kind of like turn on the inflection. I think that Danzig as a whole is probably a reference point for some of the material here. You know, kind of Danzig at its um, yeah. least goth and most, yeah. like, hard rock. I think, yeah, sure. I think that's a very good point. We've talked before about, I, I, I've talked before about how more black metal should sound like Danzig. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's, that's probably right on the money. Um, so... The speed of, like trying to wrap our heads about the riffing I, I, I wrap our heads around the riffing um and going into the final sample which has a lot more just direct inquisitionisms mm-hmm. i want to play um a quick like minute long inquisition sample if, if i had to highlight one thing about the band it would be cellular riffing um and you'll hear that when when, when you listen to this uh this is um, off of Invoking the Majestic Throne of Satan. This is uh, Kill with Hate. Yeah. 
old full retard Inquisition. <laughs> the the best, the but, smartest but, Inquisition. Before they got into space and stuff. Yeah, yeah, the space. Oh god, the last Inquisition record. Oof. What um, are you talking about? Uh, Black Mass for a Mass Grave. I thought, you know, in retrospect, I like it less just because it was so spacey. Oh, I don't know. I still like that one a lot. But anyway, I I, yeah. I like the spacey Inquisition. Yeah. Well, I. They've, I mean, in a sense, they've just never made a bad record. So I'll, I'll give you that, right? It's just not my thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, like, this is the most rigorous, minimal Inquisition. Everything that they would have later is already here, as you could hear in the descending, blang, 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 that sort of, like, mm-hmm. crashing open chords. But it's in much more compressed form. Um we talk sometimes about cellular riffing on the show. What we mean is there's a tiny cell, like mm-hmm. a little micro unit that gets, uh, get, gets recontextualized that gets sort of reiterated in varied ways. So, um, so in this case, it's da, 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 da. Um, and the, and the main riff is like da, 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 da. And then the second time they play it, they change the last note. Da, 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 da. Um, so it escalates. Um, and basically, they do it as a retarded black thrash blast beat, and then they half time it so it becomes this like rolling sinister breakdown. They do it again, and then they drop to just like the the urchug da 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 da, which is another sort of little cell phrase, and they do that. There's no sense that that has to immediately become the next riff right they just they just do that for a while until momentum wise it makes sense to drop in that descending chord figure and then they do that and then after a certain number you know after like i don't know three or four reps they do the descending chord figure again and again and it metamorphoses into the riff Mm -hmm. So, so you can hear these little cell phrases uh generating each riff generates the next one and uh it's sort of um and and it's being written for it's it's not being written riff section by riff section it's being written with an eye to the body mm. um and so here we go to the last track on the record final ride of destruction um the first half of the track is basically just a massive chain of perfectly executed inquisitionisms um and it's kind of the um it's the launcher for the second half of the song it's extremely enjoyable in itself but as you roll through it it's it's setting up the rest of the track um and uh so the sample is going to uh we're going to start at the end of the first part and the launch of the second part. Uh, and so you should know what the song has done so far. Um, what this track really encapsulates about Strix and what they're drawing from Inquisition is transfer of momentum. Right? We talked a bit about that in the Argos Lent review too. Um, about how they did that on their old stuff. Um, so this track, we start off with like rolling double bass drone just the classic inquisition um then we get a couple of those you know goat skull throwdown riffs 
Um, and then it spits us out into a stomp. And we're going to start on the stomp. Strix changes up the stomp several times. Listen to the ways he's sort of redirecting the momentum. So 
listen to that stop start at the end right the uh just it th- this sort of racing triplet section just uh sort of comes clattering to a halt instantaneously sort of pivots and then leaps again uh it, you know and then we're off into more just um just do big powerful blast riff um the way there's so much shit that happens during that sample it is difficult to start breaking down but basically uh you can hear again again and again this kind of uh the way that he's the way that the riff sort of pivot redirect throw their weight in a different direction um there's a, a dancing and fighting physicality to it. Uh, and um, what else to highlight? I mean, um, what it we get into a... The Inquisition stuff spits us out into a section of triplet blasting, which you're expecting to be in 4-4 when you first hear it. Um, and... That transforms for a while. Then we get into this massive chug section that's like something off a Solstice record. Um, and and then a wind-up into just this absolutely crazy part. How would you describe the 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 sort of the section with all that free melody? It's not a guitar solo. No, I mean, it's just... That seems to be just sort of this guy's methodology is, you know not working within the confines of the riff. Uh, it, almost going back to when we were talking about, you know, Into Oblivion. Just the idea of these incredibly elongated melodies that aren't conforming to the sort of, like, structure of extreme metal pacing. Yeah, Into Oblivion is a really good connection um, because we're, we're dealing with here is totally new melodic forms. Um, and... This is uh, the only way you can start to break. So basically what's happening is he sets up this sort of um, this storming gallop. Uh, it's like triplet blasting, but he's accenting the blasts with the snare so that it sounds like a Graveland kind of, the, the Graveland triplet. It's like following, it's like the blasts on following the voice of blood. Um, and, but like faster and more competently executed um, and more of a continuum. And so over that then, he's got Screamo-style octaves playing these transforming figures. And the only way you can really parse it is in terms of cellular riffing, the the Inquisition technique, just taken in a much more complex direction, right? There are a couple little two to four note phrases that he uses that recur in different ways throughout that passage, but um, totally reconfigured. He, he leaves space between um, different runs, which is interesting. Um, he, uh, it's, it's sounds like it's there. It sounds like a lot of writing has gone into it, but it also has the free motion of a solo. One of the only other things I can compare it to is what I like to me, like maybe the best guitar solo in, in metal, which is the solo, the continuous lead section on Hammer of Damnation by Solstice. Um, but yeah, here it's got, it's like a guitar solo. It's like the longest, most unhinged Blaze Birth Hall melodies. Uh, 
it's it you know it's like a a permanently screeching battle fanfare uh it it's glorious 